Welcome to DevOps Sauna Field Day. We had some news and we wanted to get some expert opinions and get this out to you as quickly as we possibly could. So I have my usual cohort, Andy Allred here. Hello. And we invited today Darren Richardson, who is the Managed Services Security Architect at Ifica. Hello. Okay, great, guys. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a little bit of the news. So the White House National Cybersecurity Strategy um, announced a landmark action for a critical threat. Uh, Biden administration announced a new historic national cybersecurity strategy calling for cybersecurity liability and increased investment. Now, there's a lot of points here, and we'll leave some links for you in the show notes, but we're going to highlight a few of them that we believe are pertinent for essentially all software organizations today. So the first one is rebalance the responsibility to defend cyberspace. Guys, how do you see this, uh, the impact for this? I think this is going to be quite a shift because we've had this idea of uh, security is everybody's responsibility and uh, we, we need to have a security onion and do everything from every angles and, and uh, whatnot. But that hasn't panned out very well for us and we need to rethink how we're securing pretty much everything. And if there starts to be legislation around this, it may force our hands in directions we may or may not want to go and have some unforeseen consequences. So as we're juggling responsibility, it's going to it's going to affect us a lot in probably areas we don't see yet. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. And in particular, I would perhaps add that I think we're going to see a much larger effect from this in the area of the general public use rather than in software development. So it will have a lot more ramifications there. But when it comes to software development, I would hope that it's just going to enforce what people should already be doing at this point by generating their own security processes and kind of reorganizing the responsibility towards them. That's where I think it's going to be interesting because you said where security or where where companies should already be, and we can read from the news every single day that companies are not doing these things and people are suffering to various degrees because of that. So just shifting the responsibility is going to increase the focus and the companies who are doing it now are going to be, okay, this is fine. We're used to this, but there's going to be a lot of companies caught out who this should have is now you shall. It's going to, it's going to be like a very large shift in, because we both know it's always should. It's never that they always are. And I think it's going to create like a larger barrier for entry as well for a lot of smaller companies. So the large companies that have the teams that can focus on this subject will continue as they are. But for example, your tech startups that may be caught in this legislation, they're going to be heavily affected by simply not having the resources to focus on this area. So it's going to be interesting to see how it affects the tech startup scene across the US. Yep. And not just across the U.S., but across the world, I think that when the banking industry in the U.S. came out with the or started to get the requirements for know your customer, it very quickly spread throughout the entire banking world. 
So now every, pretty much every country in the world has this know your customer laws for banks and big financial things. And so what starts as, hey, this is just a U.S. thing. We don't really mind too, about, mind too much about it over here affects us a lot especially when we're talking about tech. So I think that this is U.S.-centric uh, as it is in the press release right now, but I think it's going to have far more widely reaching ramifications. Okay, another example that will have the American word in it, but this is truly a global phenomena. Um, so point number one is defend critical infrastructure. We will give the American people confidence in the availability and resilience of our critical infrastructure and the essential services it provides. Now we saw from the, uh, again, American-centric, but happens everywhere, the uh, gas pipeline hack from, was it last year or the year before, that the critical infrastructure, gas, energy production, energy distribution, whatever it might be, the, the, uh, ability to defend those from cyber, from cyber attacks and the even understanding how much network connectivity and uh, internet managed controllers there are in those systems is not very well understood and changing the ability to defend those might be a bit bigger issue than we think. Some of those companies are rather far behind by decades, not just years. Yeah, I would say decades is the optimistic estimate with a lot of these things. So the, for example, power industries, they are lagging maybe 30 or 40 years behind, and they are essentially building these giant Frankenstein-esque systems where they have modern infrastructure mixed with their traditional systems and just no real path forward to actually modernize this. It was discussed quite a lot at a recent event where essentially all of these infrastructure, not just power, so for example, healthcare, healthcare operate a, I think over 90% um, market penetration of IoT devices for various imaging and diagnostics tools. And these are always things which are not following best security practices in a lot of situations. So when we're talking about critical infrastructure, it's that's here is where cybersecurity is actually going to have an impact on people's lives. So having a focus shift to this and to say, now we will start looking into ensuring people can afford this and regulating to ensure that it happens is going to be a powerful driver over the next five years for the operational technology security development landscape. Yeah, I have to say that Sometimes I just have to close my eyes when I'm walking through the hospital because seeing Windows 95 and blue screens of death here and there, it just doesn't inspire confidence. And I have to hope that uh, the humans in the loop are, have a much bigger role than those those screens over there. Oh, that's scary. Let's, let's close our eyes. <laughs> okay. So the next one is interesting. And at, at first glance, um, this might have, uh, some people might think that this doesn't affect them uh, directly, but I, I believe that it will. Uh, point number 2.3, um, increase the speed and scale of intelligence sharing and victim notification. So, so guys, how does that affect the you know, average uh, software organization? We already have a bit of difficulty sometimes with uh, 
customers that we interact with who say, yeah, we can't have any American-based companies supplying us a cloud because we don't know what they're going to share back with their governments. And then we get something like this, which is, hey, we need to increase the speed and scale of intelligent sharing. How is that going to play out? And how are different organizations going to uh, not necessarily opt in or opt out, depending on how big this kind of thing goes, but more of how, how how are we going to interact with different entities and different providers of different services and at least understand and have visibility of what kind of risk there is for information sharing and what does victim notification really really imply i think it's going to affect a lot more than just at the at the glance yeah people share intelligence so they can prevent attacks or something yeah that's great that sounds fine but what it really means is far wider than that yeah and i think the big thing here is going to be how that it brings everything a lot closer to how it went in 2018 in the eu with the application of gdpr so one of the big changes we saw was this shift of having more communication, having direct rules about how we communicate in the situation of breaches. And this is going to be the largest effect on the end users as well, that they can trust that they are going to know about these breaches within a reasonable time frame instead of several years down the line. This happened, I think, recently in the US with the T-Mobile hacks or all six of them that have happened over the last years, as I remember. So I think we're going to see kind of a larger impact on the end user from this one, just in the interest of security and comfort of knowledge. So I think that's going to be a shift that makes everyone happy, but it's going to be a long path to get there. Okay, skipping down a little bit to point uh, 3.2, drive development of secure IoT devices. And you know this conversation we had earlier about uh, medical devices is, is a really big one here. So let's open this up a bit. Well, I think everybody knows that the S in IoT stands for security. Oh, wait. <laughs> yeah, the IoT infrastructure is so littered with mistakes that would have been unacceptable in 1999. So things like lacking encryption, things like uh, insecure storage, like command injection, which should be easily tested and caught in a quality control phase, just in the interest of getting this cheap technology into people's homes, these steps are skipped. And this is going to affect the obviously the development of software for anyone working in IoT that these devices stop becoming a focus so that they can't just be mass produced and put in people's homes with a because the US has a 42% penetration rate of IoT devices in the home that's almost half of all homes have one of these devices and well Every week we're hearing about more IoT security breaches. It's only going to get worse. So having a framework for this, for the software developers to follow, or perhaps it's fairer to say be forced to follow, is going to go a long way to securing people's actual homes. And I think it's going to, as we were talking earlier with the uh, with the other topics, be a bit of a barrier for entry because 
if you have to reach this level of security before you can ship an IoT device, uh, how, how do you do that if you're a small startup who's just trying to get the low-cost alternative? The DevOps Conference is returning to Scandinavia in 2024. World-leading speakers, dedicated DevOps practitioners, software professionals, and industry changemakers are meeting in Copenhagen on November the 5th and Stockholm on November the 7th. Join us in a safe and dynamic space to engage in the future of software development. The call for papers is open now. See you in Scandinavia. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I think it's going to come down to a case of whether any platforms will support these tools, for example. So using the tools we have available to us to essentially force these security checks as part of the code building process. So it's going to require innovation on the side of those who supply software. Yeah, and then is one of the unforeseen consequences of this being that in order to deliver IoT in the United States, you must be a partner of this vendor because they're the one who hold the keys for this or that or the other thing, and it's just not practical for anybody else to do it. So hopefully these hopefully these tools stay open enough that they're accessible. Yeah, I think a lot of what is discussed here is if it's not applied carefully could lead to kind of government instituted vendor locks not just this control in general but by i mean if we talk about go back to the start and talk about where we're shifting responsibility away from individuals to corporations then obviously if we become locked into those corporations that's going to have um, difficult effects on end users so there's lots of potential for monopolizing situations here if these controls are not followed correctly. And that segues right into uh, 3.3, which is shift liability for insecure. I'm sure, should that be insecure or unsecure? I feel like the software has a has a depression crisis or something. Um, but shift liability for insecure software products and services. Yeah, if we look at this kind of big picture and really high highest possible level. If I ship something and I have an end user license agreement that you need to scroll through and click OK, it means you can't sue me later on. And that's not exactly how it works, obviously, but basically that's how things have been done, that if you have this license agreement, then you can say your users were informed and liability is not on your side anymore. And this is going to be a big change that shifting that responsibility is not going to be as easy. It's going to be a lot more complicated and maybe not even possible to the extent it is now. So what will this do? Of course, ideally, this will be a great thing for consumers and and the end users, but what does this do to the providers and what kind of uh, scroll through, click this security, you know, DocuSign that, upload your passport photo kind of stuff are we going to have to do so that companies will say, hey, we are we have uh, got agreement that the customer is now responsible for this. So 
it, th this one I think is the one that caught my attention the fur the biggest at the at when I glanced through this the first time. And I think this one's going to be much bigger than anybody uh, can can understand today. And we don't know how exactly this is going to work out, but the shifting responsibility could be huge. If we think about how the auto industry works with recalls and and whatnot, you really have to understand every bit of or every bit of every component that you have delivered to your customers. So when you find something in any of those, you can say these are the people who are affected. Send them a letter and say, hey, we need you to come in and fix this thing. In the software industry, we've never been up to that level, but this might force us to get there. And how will that change things? What will it change? I don't think we know, but I think this is going to be one of the bigger ones. Understanding what software we have, what dependencies they have, what's been delivered where is going to be absolutely crucial. Yeah, I agree in that, oh. that you mentioned that about these dependencies, it's going to, in my opinion, have a shift a lot more towards post-incident response procedures because it's never clear in a lot of these situations, at least to begin with, how these things occur. So there's going to be a huge focus shift back towards finding out and this kind of, as these become more fertile ground for legal battles, then we're going to have this back and forth of who was actually responsible in these situations, whether it was the software vendor or whether it was one of these dependencies you mentioned. Yeah. And I remember when the log4j thing came along, there was a lot of scrambling from a lot of companies. And I, I, I'm not completely confident of this, but I believe it was ARM who within two hours said, here's all the components where we're using that, and here's what the update mechanism is to get those done. So I think that's kind of the level that we're going to need to get to, that when things are, are found to be vulnerable, not if, but when, then which companies can say, hey, here's what we need to update, and here's our process for updating them. I was going to – I have one kind of follow-up question on this one, which is um, – um, one fear that I have is that companies are going to say, okay, so we need to put uh, security scanning into place or we need to put like a, a certain tooling into place and say, okay, the, that means that we're going to be fine um, versus having a more um, you know, system-wide thinking that they need to consider all of the system in order to make sure that they're looking at all the, the potential attack vectors. I was hoping Darren would jump on that. Well, I'm considering it. The Yeah, I think there's going to be kind of a scrabbling to cover all the bases. I think the problem is, again, going to be one of a widening cost of entry, essentially, because I think there are companies who are doing all of this right right now. I think there are companies who will continue to do this, and they, as you mentioned, Andy, they are the ones like Arm, which have their ducks in a row they have their things in order and they will continue to be able to deliver on this subject but it is going to raise the bar of entry for the those who aren't doing that especially as we mentioned before the small enterprises which these small enterprises which are essentially running minimal operations they don't have fully focused security staff or if they do they have a small team 
So I think they're going to have the largest hurdle here. I don't know if that fully answers your question, Mark, but those are my thoughts at least. Thank you for the validation that at least it was a reasonable question. Okay. Uh, thank you guys uh, for this. I think this has been, uh, been really useful. Um, would you like to uh, run us through the takeaways, Andy? The biggest takeaway for me is things like software bill of materials, understanding what we've got, what dependencies are included, which version included, which dependencies, when it was shipped is just going to be absolutely critical and table stakes going forward. So at the recent, uh, our recent conference in Copenhagen, Kelsey Hightower was there and talked about the uh, supply chain levels for looking at the link now for software artifacts, SLSA, or pronounced salsa, and you can find that at slsa.dev, and we'll have a link in the show notes. But there's a kind of a process already for signing your software, signing your commits, uh, packaging stuff, and scanning for dependencies and providing a list of dependencies, this software bill of materials. And I think things like this are just going to become table stakes. So if you want to get ahead of the game, and you should, then start looking at this type of of uh, scanning and not just the scanning, but inventory of what you have down to the dependencies. All right. Anything you'd like to add, Darren? Yes, I think my big takeaway from this would be about timeline. So when GDPR hit Europe, we found ourselves scrambling to catch up with the new regulations. Even though we had plenty of time, plenty of warning, we knew what we should be doing, but people just delayed. And these are not going to be changes you can make quickly. These are changes that you have to make over time the best time to have all of this in place is yesterday and the best time to start putting it in place is right now before any of these things get ratified before they become requirements because that's how you're going to get ahead in this situation you can't leave this till the last minute since we're recording this from finland we can use the finnish expression we need to skate where the puck is going not where it's been Excellent. Um, I'd like to thank you both again, and we're going to leave a pile of links for you in the show notes. So this has been a DevOps Sauna Field Day. We'll now give our guests an opportunity to introduce themselves. Hello, I'm Darren Richardson. I'm the Security Architect for Managed Services here at EffieCode. My name is Mark Dillon. I'm a lead consultant in the transformation business at EffieCode. My name is Andy Allred, and I'm doing platform engineering at EffieCode. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please like and subscribe. It means the world to us. Also, check out our other interesting talks and tune in for our next episode. Take care of yourself and remember what really matters is everything we do with machines is to help humans. Humans.